Music team, thanks again. Everything about this morning is going to be about that. A lamb who is on his throne, amen? And everything that is enta- it entails, everything that comes with it, we get to celebrate even later. In just a moment, we'll prepare for the Lord's table. We always look forward to and we want to be faithful in that regard. We're given a lot of help this morning. Before we pray, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, speaking of communion, the Lord's table, it does us well to perhaps take this Sunday with our pastor away to pause Hebrews and just spend time in a chapter which is incredibly important to our observance of this ordinance that the Lord instituted himself. We want to be faithful. We want to obey. We want to worship through this table. What does that look like? That is the question we will answer. If you'll bow your head and close your eyes, let's... Pray this morning. Father, if we are going to be compelled and prompted to sing to you glory, honor, wisdom, and power, It will be because you delight to show your power among us through the preaching of your word. We ask that you would find us to be humble and contrite, broken in spirit, and that you would find us malleable in your presence. That whatever you have preordained and set forward to accomplish today through the opening of your word, Lord, would you have your way for your great honor. If there be sin and indifference and apathy that needs to be eradicated from our heart, would you do this, Lord? If there be sin that we're harboring and stiff-necked and desiring to cling to and not repent of, Lord, would you break us of this as well? May you bring conviction. May you also bring encouragement and hope. We thank you that we stand today in your presence and because of the finished work that you have done, we have an enemy who cannot accuse us, though he best try. We stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself, of which we now say thank you. We pray that the sweetness behind communion and all that it celebrates and symbolizes, Lord, to us would land upon us afresh that you would guard us from the, the sin of familiarity that breeds contempt. May we be prompted to be full of awe and wonder at the grandeur of what you have done through your Son. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. It's important I'm not walking away from the pulpit. Trust me, you don't want me without this. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you're taking notes today, the main idea is the following. Our risen Savior, pause there for a moment of awe-inspiring reflection. Our risen Savior should be continually honored with a proper observance of the Lord's Supper. Our risen Savior should be continually honored to a proper observance of the Lord's Supper, to which any earnest lover of God's word should be prompted to ask, wait, what does proper absor- observance look like? Well, we get to answer that today. My encouragement would be twofold. One, lean in with all the earnestness that God's spirit can muster within you. Lean into this text afresh, but also watch out because there is a nugget of a text inside of this passage that will be very very familiar. Let's read verse 17 through 34 today. We have much ground to cover. As Paul writes, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. 
Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. And when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Our risen Savior should be continually honored with the proper observance of the Lord's Supper. Friends, by instruction and by Example, Christ our Savior instituted two ordinances. You have baptism and communion. Jesus commanded his disciples, you know the passage, Matthew chapter 28, right? Go into all nations making disciples, and what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Likewise, just prior to that, during his last Passover meal in the upper room, Jesus initiated communion. What has been known and now called the Lord's Supper. Telling his disciples to continue in the observance of this as they remember him after his passing. This is why the Lord's Supper is often referred to as the remembrance meal. Or the meal of remembrance. And from that point on, followers of Jesus Christ have faithfully observed and even worshipped through this ordinance. Acts 2.42 records that those within the early church literally dedicated themselves to the apostolic teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. From other places in scriptures, as well as the historical record, we actually know that the, the church developed special fellowship meals that came to be called love feasts. And they were typically closed with the observance of communion. These were congregational meals that stressed fellowship affection for each other, even mutual care for one another, and the emphasis on unity and oneness in these times led very readily to the celebration of Christ's work on the cross that made such unity even possible. And so when we ask, what does proper observance of the Lord's Supper look like? Well, North Lake, this is where you and I get to benefit, unfortunately, from the failures of those in history. You see, after Paul's departure, local leaders had arisen, as is often the case. And these local leaders wished to take the church in a different theological direction than what Paul left. And so there was a collection of departures from Paul's teaching since he left just three short years prior. Reports of problems were being brought in from Corinth to Ephesus by the hand of Chloe, Stephanus. These reports told of factions, adultery, wives casting off their submission, selfish actions at the Lord's Supper, and even doubts about the future resurrection, of which we read a moment ago in chapter 15. And friends, these circumstances, as gross and 
atrocious as they are, these circumstances in the church of Corinth demanded that the Apostle Paul provide some sort of response. Well, thankfully for us, the book of 1 Corinthians represents that response. Paul's systematic teaching put together in a thematically organized way to address and correct and rebuke and steer God's people back to where the direction that they ought to go. This is why the Corinthians' theological error and departure now proves to be our gain. Why? It's because we get to benefit from its important teachings that come from this. For you and I, when we reach chapter 11, Paul is really beginning a new section in this letter. He is hearing, he's inundated by report after report. So that chapters 11 through 14 is all about Paul laying out corrective instruction regarding life together in the local church. At the top of chapter 11, he's dealing with man and woman relationships within the church. And something that Paul did, he he gave governing principles of what should exist between man and woman relationships within the church. But the sacred tradition was the procedure to be followed when remembering the death of the Messiah at the Lord's Supper. It's interesting to note, as you look at the whole of chapter 11, when he addresses man and woman relationships, look at verse 2. He gives them a note of praise. He says, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. You see, there were simply difficulties that needed to be set right, but that's not the case with this particular tradition that he's addressing here with the Lord's Supper. Look down at verse 17. There's there's no room for encouragement here at the head of this second tradition. Rather, he says in the following, "I, I don't have any praise at all for you. But in giving this instruction, that is regarding the Lord's Supper, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Paul is making it pretty clear. Listen, it would have been much better for you not to come together for this love feast, for you not to observe the Lord's Supper, than you to observed it and abused it as you have. That would have been better. And from his expounding on from this point, we now get to benefit in our own observance of communion. What does proper observance look like then? We're going to make several observations. Observation number one would be, well... Communion requires a protection from perversion. Communion requires protection from perversion. Let's be very clear. There was something horribly wrong going on in Corinth. There was something known as the Corinthian perversion, which in a nutshell was simply a gross toleration of self-driven division that was permeating the church. Such that instead of these celebrations being times of loving fellowship and mutual enrichment and care and spiritual flourishing, they involve selfish indulgence and even shaming the poor. And in so doing, not only are they mocking the sacrificial death of the Lord himself, of which they come to remember, but they're also simultaneously scandalizing the church before an unbelieving world that's looking in. And so let's unpack this scandalization for a moment as we continue to read when you come together Paul writes as a church pastoral pause there for a moment to feel the ecclesiastical weight of that you come together as what a church what should have struck those in Corinth is everything that entails in that word church friends you are a people that have been redeemed by this no small price but the blood of Jesus Christ himself that's why you are the church You are one in him such that Greek or Jew, Gentile, slave, barbarian, Scythian, free man. It makes no difference. All of you are one in Christ. Why? Because you are united in him as the church. But notice the sad irony here in the weight of this statement. When you come together as a church, notice how their life does not match the spiritual reality that resides Within them, though you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. 
so much for love feast, right? Instead of sharing together in fellowship, instead of sharing together in worship, they spent their time in selfish indulgence, arguing, disputing. Paul says divisions. Where there's schismatic from which we get schism, right? The, the weight of that word is literally tearing, cutting, ripping apart, which was what an apropos description of division in the church, is it not? Literally tearing apart. And Paul goes on to add it to say, notice how condemning this is, and in part, I believe it. This problem was obviously so strong and so rampant that Paul began this letter addressing this very thing. Turn back to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians for a moment. Chapter 1, verse 10. He, he begins by strongly rebuking individuals within the Corinthian church for their division based upon what we would call party loyalties, right? In 1 Corinthians 1.10, you had people who were devoted and loyal to Apollos. People loyal to Peter, and people still loyal to Paul. And notice Paul's first appeal to them. Chapter 1, verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels... Among you. You move on to chapter 3. Paul makes it abundantly clear why, what the reason is for the division. It was selfishness. It was worldliness. They were a people walking according to the flesh, as we see in the book of Galatians, and not according to the Spirit. They were following their own wills rather than that of the Lord's. North Lake, I would encourage us to ponder this morning one of the most terrifying things in the church is division. One of the most terrifying things in the church is division. Why? It's because it is often the first and surest sign of spiritual sickness. One of the first symptoms of worldliness. One of the first symptoms of backsliding, often before it even shows up in compromised doctrine or lifestyle, is a dissension that starts to exist and permeate a congregation. Now, in one sense, we know that division within the church cannot be entirely avoided. We know that until the Lord returns, there's always going to be tares among the wheat. There always will be until the Lord returns. And in verse 19, Paul is well aware of this, right? He says, for there must, divine necessity, there must also be factions among you. There's a paradox here. And the paradox is that it was necessary for there to be factions in the Corinthian church. Why? Keep reading verse 19. So that those who are approved may become evident among, among you. Those who are approved may become evident among you. You see, there is a principle whereby evil helps manifest that which is good. Trouble within the church often creates a, situ a situation in which true spiritual maturity, leadership, strength can be manifested. And church division, as ungodly and sinful as it is, I want you to be encouraged by this this morning, is nevertheless used by the Lord in this age to prove those who are faithful. Paul says, those who are approved. Used of precious metals, tried in a fire, and proven to be pure. Friends, it's often in the midst of bickering and divisiveness that the faithful are separate, separated out. They, they act radically different. They don't participate in said division. They don't contribute to the quarreling that you see in James chapter 3. Their lives are marked by maturity. And they're separated out as pure gold is from dross. Those who approve may become evident among you. Now, while division helps reveal the faithful or the approved, there's an important caveat here that extends from the rest of this passage. While div division helps reveal the faithful, it is still not, not, not 
to be left unchallenged. See, division, when left unchallenged, is not only disruptive, but it's woefully destructive. And so while it was necessary for factions to appear, it was also necessary that they not be tolerated and allowed to consume a congregation. And that is what was taking place in the Corinthian church. Unchecked division had obscured God's purpose for what we're about to participate in, the Lord's Supper. It had destroyed the sanctity of this act of worship. The factious members of the Corinthian church had so perverted the congregation that the celebration of communion was a mockery. It was a shell of what it was intended. It was, in fact, not communion at all. Look at verse 20. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. North Lake, they had, the, they had the ceremony, but not the reality, right? They had the form, but not the substance. You're coming together. Paul even says, listen, you may be breaking some bread. You may be passing a cup. You may even be saying some of Jesus' words. But I have you know this, what you are doing has nothing, nothing to do with the ordinance that the Lord instituted to you. Christ has no part in what you are doing. That's a heavy word to receive. And indeed, the entire book of 1 Corinthians is that. It's heavy. Keep reading in verse 21. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What is happening here? What is happening is that the wealthy who brought food and drink, they would gather before the poor had a chance to come and join them. The wealthy would quickly gorge themselves and become drunk in a rage of selfishness, such that the result was that the poor believers would come to the meal expecting to share in the food that was around the table, and those poor believers went away hungry, both physically as well as spiritually. And so what was happening is that the church was mocking the very purpose of this occasion, which was to bring harmony which was to bring unity among those who belong to Christ as they remember the sacrifice of Christ that was instrumental and sufficient to make them one in Him. They excluded the poor. And so Paul rightfully vents his pastoral frustration, doesn't he? As if trying to find a rational explanation, and you can sense the, the sarcasm here. I, I, I connect with Paul here, being sarcastic myself at times. He says, what? Do you not have houses of which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. The translation of that, if their intent was to selfishly indulge themselves, Paul says, you could do that at home. What are you doing bringing that selfishness around the Lord's table? If your intent was to shame and embarrass the poor, well, there's no possible justification for your actions in bringing harm against the church. If you can't show love to all believers, why have a love feast? Is the rationale of Paul in this text. What's the takeaway for you and I at this juncture? Friends, when we come to this table and when we share in the bread of his body and the cup of his blood, the takeaway for you and I, it is absolutely necessary that we leave behind all sin. That's the takeaway. And by all sin, I mean every ounce of bitterness, every vestige of prejudice, all evidences of class pride, feelings of superiority are to be renounced and set aside among God's people. Yes, around the table, but permanently among God's people. Amen? Of all places and occasions, those attitudes are most out of place at the Lord's Supper. Why? Well, it's because of the reality that's bound up in the gospel of Jesus Christ, is it not? We sing a song, Empty Hands I Bring. 
it, it matters not what, I, what one does for a living, how much money you make, what car you drive, what background you have, what rap sheet may come behind you. If you be in Christ today, you are clothed with the, with the righteousness of another. You are all one in him, of which God's people should say thank you and amen. All of those classifications that the world likes to heap and delineate and divide up people, they don't exist in the church. We come together as the church. And may it never be said of us that the last end of that sentence that we read earlier, and I hear that divisions exist among you. To bring such division is to profane this beautiful and holy act of worship that we participate in at the Lord's table. What does proper observance look like? Well, it requires protection from perversion. And while we press on, we're going to see another beautiful jewel of a passage tucked into this muddy road of rebuke against worldliness. Paul says, let me tell you about the very ceremony that you perverted through your selfishness. And right out the gate, Paul is very clear that what he's about to reiterate to them were not his words, but the words of God himself. Look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord. That which I also deliver to you. What was it that he received? What was the remainder of this text? Which leads us to our second observance. Observation, rather. Communion serves a powerful Christ-centered purpose. Communion serves a powerful Christ-centered purpose. One aspect of this Christ-centered purpose is it stands to be a wonderful and glorious Praise be to God, Easter reflection. Look at verse 23. It gives the historical setting. May this land on you afresh. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Here it is. That the Lord, the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed. I hope you're encouraged by that this morning. You have these moments in God's word where you see that it's in the midst of the world's evil. And it is evil. Fallen, corrupt, and broken. We long, Romans 8, for him to come back and restore that which he has created. Right? Eager anticipation. It's often in the midst of the world's evil that God accomplishes his great good. Does he not? Genesis 50, 20. Right? Joseph. What you meant for evil, my God meant for good. And that continues to remain over our life as a resounding principle, as well as truth. The most beautiful and meaningful of Christian celebrations. Mark this. The most beautiful and meaningful of Christian celebrations was instituted on the night that the Lord was what? Betrayed and arrested. What did the Lord do that night? Well, we know the redemptive work that he's going to do the following day, yes? What Jesus was establishing was a new meal that would now supersede an old meal. You see, it was not incidental that Christ initiated communion during the Passover meal. God instituted the Passover in the Old Testament when he delivered his people from their 400 years of bondage in Egypt. That meal celebrated the death angels passing over the homes of Israelites who had what? Who had the blood of the lamb smeared upon the doorpost of their house. That lamb itself was then roasted and eaten along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And Exodus 12, 14 says, this will be a memorial and a celebration to you. You will always remember this deliverance when you observe Passover. And throughout her history, Israel celebrated this meal in remembrance of the Lord's powerful deliverance from Egypt to the promised land. And so what Jesus, our Savior, did the night that he was betrayed in that upper room with his disciples was transform the Passover into a celebration of an infinitely greater deliverance that he had come to bring. A deliverance of which the Passover was just a foreshadow. And a foretaste of what was to come. Here's what Passover looked like. It had four cups. 
the meal would begin with the host pronouncing a blessing over the first cup and passing that cup around its, the guest. After the first cup was drunk, bitter herbs would be dipped in fruit sauce, and then a message would be given regarding the meaning of Passover. Those gathered would then heartily sing part of the Hillel Psalms, Psalm 113 to 118. After the second cup would be passed, the host would break and pass around the unleavened bread. Then the meal proper, which consisted of that roasted sacrificial lamb, would be eaten. A prayer would be rendered, and then a third cup would be passed around, while those gathered would sing the rest of the Hillel Psalms. The fourth cup, which celebrated the coming kingdom, would literally be enjoyed and partaken of right before leaving the house. Anticipating his return yet future. Why is this so significant to you and I? Well, friends, it was the third cup that Jesus blessed and that became the cup of communion. Look at the rest of the text. The night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread that had represented the exodus now came to represent the body of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus said, this is my body, which is, and if you underline in your Bibles, there are two beautiful words right there. This is my body, which is what church? For you. There's but God in scripture. And there's for you are some of the two most beautiful words in all of Scripture. In a sense, Jesus was saying in this statement, I became a man for you. I'm going to suffer for you. I'm going to die for you so that you can live. Jesus proceeded to give his body. His entire incarnate life for us who would believe in him. He paid the ransom for everyone who would be freed through his work on the cross. But that's not all. Verse 25, in the same way he took the cup, that's the third cup. Also after supper, the lamb here is finished. The lamb here is consumed. After this, he said, this cup is the new covenant. My blood. The cup that had represented the, the lamb's blood smeared upon the doorpost now came to represent the blood of the lamb of God shed for the sins of the world. The old covenant had been ratified time and time and time again repeatedly by the blood of animals offered by the hands of sinful men. We've seen this in the book of Hebrews. We will continue to see it still more. But not the new covenant. The new covenant was ratified once and for all. By the blood of Jesus Christ which God offered himself. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Of which God's people say, God we thank you that no more blood needs to be spilled. Hebrews 9.28, so Christ also having been offered once, once to bear the sins of many. If you be in Christ today, those include your sins. Will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. And I trust you do today. That old deliverance was merely from Egypt to Canaan. The new deliverance was profoundly different. It was from sin to salvation. It was from death to life. It was from Satan's realm to God's heaven. That old deliverance was temporary. The new deliverance is forever. The Passover that night was transformed in the Lord's Supper. And so we now eat the bread and drink the cup... Not to remember the Red Sea and the Exodus, but to remember what? To remember the cross. And to remember our Savior. and What he accomplished for us. Notice the sharing of the Lord's Supper is not an option. 
for believers. He says, do this in remembrance of me. That's a command straight from the lips of your Savior. This is a non-negotiable observance. To have communion on a regular basis is to be faithful to the Lord who bought you through his blood. He bought you through the act we are called to remember. Like fashion, the opposite is also equally true. To not partake of the Lord's Supper is disobedience and sin. For you and I, as we set out to do this today, I think again, any earnest lover of God's word should ask, well, what does it, what does it entail to remember him? When he says, in remembrance of me, what exactly is he exhorting us to do? You see, for the Hebrew, to remember meant much, much more than simply bringing something to mind and recalling that it happened. For the Hebrew, to truly remember is to go back and to recapture as much as you can the significance and reality of an event and experience as you possibly can. To remember Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross is to relive with him his life. Relive with him his agony, his death and suffering for you. We're going to sing, or just sung a moment ago, all the claims of Satan's curse lifted through his offering. Satisfied through suffering, all the blessings he deserves poured on my unworthy soul. That is what it is to remember him. Lord, all of the claims of Satan's curse lifted through his offering. Satisfied through suffering. To which we are then compelled to sing glory and honor and power and wisdom to the Lamb upon the throne. Thankfully, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we do not offer a sacrifice over and over and over again. We remember his once for all sacrifice. You may be here today. And you may be thinking, Wade, you don't understand what I've done. And you're right. I don't know. I don't understand all that you've done. But I know this for sure. Christ's work is sufficient for you. Regardless of your rap sheet. His grace is sufficient. His blood is enough once for all. And there's nothing you can bring to him. Empty hands I bring. You come to Christ. You avail yourself to his mercy. God, I am bankrupt in your presence. Would you save me through your cross? And you know what God's word says? He is faithful and just to forgive you all your sins. Amen and amen. It is an Easter reflection, to be sure. Another component of communion's Christ-centered purpose, woven in here, is verse 26. is also an evangelistic reverberation. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, and there's no prescribed frequency, it's just regularity, just do it. Notice what he says, as, long as, you, as often as you do it, you do something, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's more than a remembrance for our sakes, it's also a proclamation for the world's sake. It's a sound that echoes out far beyond the, the brief window of time that it takes to worship through this meal. It's an ongoing testimony among God's people that we are not ashamed of our Savior. I'm not ashamed of the blood that he spilled, and I'm not ashamed of my allegiance to him. I gladly, unashamedly, without reservation, proclaim his death. Because his death is what the world needs. Communion is a bold declaration that I belong to him. And he belongs to me. 
That's not all. Communion also serves as an eschatological reminder. Eschatological is just a big way of saying that which has not yet happened, that which is yet future in the end. It is a reminder of something that is to yet take place. We proclaim the Lord's death until what? Until he comes. Friends, communion, when you take the cup and the bread, I need you to feel this this morning. It's a reminder that your God is coming back. That he's scheduled to return. And it helps us look forward to that day when he will come. And we will be with him. As John 14 says, right? I go to prepare a place for you. A place of many rooms. If it were not true, I would have told you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, know this. I'm going to come back. And I'm going to bring you to be with me there also. Communion is a reminder that my God is scheduled, my Savior is scheduled to return. Do, am I, will I be found eagerly awaiting his return? By communion, we not only celebrate his present life and the life we now have in him, and we do. But we also celebrate his future reign and glory. We celebrate the reality that there is a perfect kingdom coming where there will be no more tears, no more sorrow and sadness and sin. And our great Savior is going to bring all of that kingdom with him when he returns. I would pause here just long enough to ask you this morning, are you enthusiastic about the return of your Savior? Are you enthusiastic about all that he's scheduled to bring with him? Or are you consumed about the cares and frustrations of this life? Are you more consumed with where you're going to eat for lunch today? Are you more consumed with how you're going to pay the bills this week? Those are stresses and concerns. They're not equal, to be sure. But do you allow those things to put blinders on your eyes so that you live disconnected from the reality that you have a Savior who's coming back for you? Communion should serve a ministry in your life to help you look forward to that day that is yet to come. God, forgive me for my short-sightedness, my selfishness, my fretting, my angst, my worry, my unbelief in you. Forgive me. Our enthusiasm is often contained and stifled by indifference and apathy and familiarity that proves counterproductive and destructive. May we examine ourselves. Which leads us to our third observation. Communion not only serves a powerful Christ-centered purpose, but it also demands proper preparation. It demands proper preparation. Verse 27 Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. The sobering reality is that one can come to this table in an unworthy manner and and do so in a host of different ways. What are those ways? Well, it's common for people to come and participate in a ritualistic fashion. They simply go through the motions, disconnected and not participating with their minds and with their hearts. They can go through their motions and treat it lightly rather than seriously. Still more, people can believe that this act of worship actually imparts some measure of grace and merit. That the ceremony itself, rather than the sacrifice it represents, can save or maybe even keep one saved. Many still more even come with a spirit of bitterness or hatred toward another believer. Or come with sin of which they will not repent. The reality is if a believer comes with anything less than the loftiest thoughts of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And with anything less than total love for his brothers and sisters in Christ. He comes in an unworthy manner. They literally become guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. You know this to put this in a way we can understand today, right? If if someone tramples over the flag of the United States, they're not so much bringing dishonor to the flag as they're bringing dishonor to that which the flag represents. The same same is true of communion. 
to come unworthily to communion does not simply dishonor the ceremony. It dishonors the one in whose honor it celebrates. We become guilty of dishonoring his body and his blood. We become guilty of mocking and treating with indifference the very person of Christ himself. Now knowing this, what is a believer to do? Look at verse 28. What is a believer to do? Well, a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Before we partake, we are to give ourselves a thorough examination, looking honestly at our hearts for anything that should not be there. And what happens if examination doesn't occur? Well, if we refuse and fail to examine ourselves, Paul says we do not judge the body rightly. And then there's this great possibility of chastening or judgment to come our way. Look at verse 29. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if, conditional statement, if he does not judge the body rightly. Judgment here has the idea of chastisement. Now friend, just to make sure we're very clear about this, Romans 8, we love it. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So by judgment, this is not condemnation of the lost. By judgment, he's talking about discipline upon the saved. And the types of chastening the Lord may use are powerfully illustrated in verse 30. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. Yes, God does not eternally condemn those who abuse the Lord's table, but his punishment may be severe on this earth nonetheless. Even illness that leads to death. God literally put to death a number of Corinthian believers. Why? Because they continually despised and corrupted the supper of his son. Throughout the scripture, such divine executions were to serve as a reminder. A reminder for believers to judge themselves rightly. Just ask Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. So what are you and I compelled to do? Friends, we're compelled, at least we ought, to confess our sins. To confess our wrong attitudes and motives, all the while knowing that our God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins if we come to him. God sends individual chastening to push offenders back towards righteous behavior. And he sends death to some in the church to encourage those who do remain to choose holiness over sin. As well as to protect the testimony of his church. Paul closes by admonishing the Corinthians to get their lives and their attitudes straightened out. Completely discard the prejudices. Get rid of the selfishness and their indifference to God's holy ordinance. Look at verse 33. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Wait for one another. If you are attending this time to simply satisfy your physical hunger, hunger, and, and keep in mind in the other church, these were, these were love feasts. These were full-blown meals. Paul says stay at home. There's no point gathering to sin because that is simply together, coming together for judgment. You come together, not for the better, but for the worse. These are strong words. What does proper observance of the Lord's Supper look like? It requires protection from perversion. It serves a powerful, Christ-centered purpose. And it demands proper preparation. How do you and I live what we learn from this text? I'll give you just several this morning. To be fleshed out even in small group this week. Number one, proactively tend to the relationships in your life. And by tend, I mean treat it like a garden. Rid yourself of pests. Rid yourself of any parasites that seek to destroy relationships. Pull out the weeds and sow the seeds of distrust. Bury hatchets that allow you to hold grudges. Grudges that 
blooming full. Any thorns of bitterness that you have towards other people, cut them out. Get rid of them. Just two chapters later, in chapter 13, we have a wonderful chapter. We know it's the love chapter, right? How should God's people be marked in relationships within? Love is patient, kind, not jealous, does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. We keep short account of sins. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Proactively to the relationships in your life. And I say proactively because it will not happen by accident. Marriages, friendships, proactively tend to the relationships in your life. Day after day after day. If a relationship is not right. Confess that. See it be made right before you proceed to take the table in an unworthy manner. Secondly, appropriately reflect on the significance of Christ's work. Don't allow familiarity to do a number in your life this morning. We love the gospel. We relish in the gospel. We should never grow tired of the message of the gospel. Appropriately reflect on the significance of what Christ has done. Third, humbly allow the import of the gospel to properly affect your life. Let it promote that godly sorrow that does lead to repentance. Let it silence the enemy who wants to accuse you this morning. And have you sit in that chair with shame and guilt that's already been done done away with at the cross. Let it blow the fresh winds of hope that you are his. And as we'll sing in a moment, he is yours. Fourth and finally, thoroughly repent of that which godly sorrow is produced. Communion demands proper preparation. Don't be guilty of observing this table in an unworthy manner. If you're here today and not in Christ, if you've never availed yourself to the mercy of God that you desperately need and have done so through faith and repentance, I plead with you two things. One, Let the bread and the cup pass by. And two, let today be the day of salvation. Humble yourself before a mighty and holy God. Let him save you through the finished work of his son. Not your doing, but his. This God who gave his life is an offering for your sin. Dying the death that you deserve and paying the price that only an eternity in hell could pay. He paid it for you. Would you receive it by faith? Would you repent of your sins and turn to him, crying out for him to save you? God's word says, for those who do said things, you will be saved. It's a promise. If you're here today and you are in Christ, we welcome you to this table, whether you're a member or not. But my plea would be simple. Take heed to this text this morning. Don't come in an unworthy manner.